alchemy could be defined as the art and science of transformation. And as we know, energy is neither created nor destroyed, it's only transforming. So if you want to understand how everything is working and how it's transforming, then understanding the laws and the rules and the processes and archetypes of alchemy become very important. And in fact, they take center stage. There's really three practices inside of the corpus of hermeticism that are absolutely vital if you consider yourself a hermeticist, and that's alchemy, and then astrology or astronomy, and then magic or Kabbalah, depending on your persuasion and tradition. Within the context, both of, uh, you know, Vibrational Medicine by Dr. Richard Gerber, there's a fantastic book, he talks about this very same principle that there is this succession of different planes or dimensions to the human anatomy. And so he refers to this as multidimensional human anatomy. In Kabbalah, we have the very same thing, the very same four dimensions. Uh, in Kabbalah, you start off with Atzilut, which is the spiritual dimension. And this corresponds to the element of fire, traditionally in the West in the Hermetic text. And then you go down. And once things in the spiritual dimension, this is like our sense of oneness, belonging, uh, the sense of source to creation, et cetera, et cetera. Combination of planets and stars and where they're at and all of these different things, those create myriad different varieties, kind of like programming uh, that we take a look at today. And so the astral is kind of like the short code of the multidimensional body, whereas the causal plane is like the binary, the zeros and the ones of, of the programming of our reality. various entities, especially what we call en spirituale, how that has very specific, like we, I can explain it scientifically and draw the parallels from scientific electromagnetic and electrochemical phenomena perspective, but how all earth peoples, regardless of where they're at, whether they're Native American, Native Africans, Native Asians, or anywhere in between, uh, like we were talking about before the show, also heavily within the Jinn tradition of, of Islamic culture, as well as very much so in the Celtic culture with the Fae, you begin to see that there is a tremendous reality to that plane and how a great deal of disease and illnesses and other things like that actually spawn from what most people would refer to as metaphysical or supernatural kind of phenomena. There are spirits of destruction, that there are spirits of procreation, that there are spirits of many different forms, and even the trees and the, the you know, every blade of grass, every plant has its own unique spirit, has its own unique intelligence that is at once corporeal by way of the plant, but it's also very incorporeal and it's also very uh, metaphysical, so to speak, from the Western perspective. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of The Spirit Box. So today we are joined by alchemist Phoenix Aurelius to talk about his research into Paracelsius and Spagyrics. Now I really enjoyed this show. There was so much interesting territory to explore and, and we really got into it. We got into alchemy and its place in the modern world. We discussed the similarities between the holographic models and hermetic models of reality and, and how that plays out in the Cartesian split, which is really core to the type of work uh, Phoenix Aurelius does. We get into spirit afflictions as, as a cause of disease and health problems. And we talk about the spiritual impact of living with and in nature, as opposed to living in dominion over nature, 
which uh, those of you who are long-time listeners to the show know that um, I think is a, is, a, is a really important topic and one that's very close to my heart. Um, but it's, it's all good stuff. And uh, yeah, this was an immensely enjoyable show. In the plus section, we get into how gardening and a magical practice eventually lead to kitchen experimentation, be it making vinegars, blending your own oils, or even just making your own chutney, whatever whatever that might be. We, we talk the practicalities and benefits of fermentation, and uh, we look at it from an alchemical perspective. We also discuss, again, from an alchemical perspective, the, the disappointing problems with modern beer. So if that sounds like your bag, head on over to the podcast Patreon and sign up. It's as everybody says, it's the price of a cup of coffee and you get loads of cool stuff. All right, let's uh, let's get into it. Phoenix Aurelius, you're very welcome to the Spirit Box. Really nice to have you on the show. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um, so as the, the, the listeners won't know this, but I've already kind of uh, derailed the show by talking for 10 minutes before we even got to start started. <laughs> so we're, we're back in, we're back in the game, we're focusing now. Um, but I think just to kind of get the, the show on the road, could you tell people a little bit about kind of who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So my name is Phoenix Aurelius. And for about the past 17 years, I've been a practical alchemist, and uh, also I would I would actually call myself a hermeticist, but I focus very heavily, and, and most of my work is known basically due to the alchemical work that I've been doing and presenting on for many years. And uh, one of the things that I focus on is Paracelsian medicine and Paracelsian theories and cosmology, because he was one of the most important of the alchemists that every modern alchemist draws upon today. And so. I've taken all of his theories and all of his writings and translated them from the old German and put them into English as well as possible and, and been able to reconstruct so many of the ideas. And then I vet them by using research wellness clients to be able to see which of the ideas maybe belongs in the past or are somewhat superstitious or whatever, and which of the ideas and the tenants uh, are really effective and, and what can we lean from and, and, and kind of borrow from and incorporate into our modern society today. And in that journey, what I've learned is that uh, alchemy is more or less a perennial philosophy of the way that nature transforms energy from one state to the next. And I've learned to, through a number of different teachers and experiences and other things, just begin to put this into a context where I've weaved it, uh, weaved it into the fabric of my being. And uh, a big part of my goal is to be able to take alchemy and hermeticism and weave it back into the social fabric by sharing these ideas with others because they're kind of marginally uh, outliers in the modern world, but I think that they lend a whole lot of credence and, and necessity to our modern world. Oh, you got yourself on yeah, mute. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm back in the game. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you touched on something there that I'd like to uh, kind of unpack a bit and really kind of it's the modern view of alchemy you know, and how it sits in, in kind of the overall kind of like I guess metaphysical study areas. Um, I mean, there's there's a hermetic element which you spoke to already, but but how do you see that alchemy fits into the the modern world? Sure. Well, realistically, from my perspective, which is what I'm going to share, 
Um, alchemy realistically is the cornerstone of all experience and all understanding. Unless you have that as a certain context, you take a look at the world around you and it seems so seemingly separate, seemingly distant, uh, distant. different traditions don't seem to, you know, say traditions like we were talking about before the show uh, from say the Middle East or the Islamic world don't necessarily see eye to eye with traditions from a lot of the Western world. But when you begin to understand alchemy, then everything takes a, a uh, it, it kind of comes together and it begins to make sense. So one of the things that I always like to start off with is that from the most broad kind of objective view, alchemy could be defined as the art and science of transformation. And as we know, energy is neither created nor destroyed, it's only transforming. So if you want to understand how everything is working and how it's transforming, then understanding the laws and the rules and the processes and archetypes of alchemy become very important. And in fact, they take center stage because that allows somebody to begin consciously seeing, consciously utilizing these very same principles, processes, archetypes, et cetera, regardless of what they're seeing. And realistically, it becomes a filter of perception so that you can see everything in such a way that you you identify the commonality first and then notice the regional differences or bioregional differences. And uh, that's, that's been something that's absolutely enormous. And just like we can apply, you know, alchemical practice to the laboratory, you can apply it to the mind and to the psyche, of course. You can apply it to the spirit. You can apply it to gardening and agriculture the way that I've done with alchemiculture. You can apply it to just about absolutely anything that you can think of because it's a universal and and, and holographic archetypal process, so. It's funny you should mention holographic because while I was kind of um, just doing up some notes um, before the show and, and, and reading um, so, some of your material and, and the whole idea of kind of Paracelsus with the man is the, the microcosm, it, it really reminded me of kind of David Baum's uh, model of kind of the, the theory of um, implicit order of wholeness um and uh, and the holographic models and they're kind of um, yeah. um, what's his name is it michael talbot wrote a book in the 90s you remember the, the holographic universe yeah the whole yeah i've got yeah. it on the shelf behind me yeah yeah um and that that was that's one of the things that re really struck me kind of reading through uh, your work or, or listening to you on on, on other shows was it, that similar model but it's it's ancient you know, uh, and this is a very, very old thing that is established and, and has uh, been maintained through this tradition. Right. And that's a, a fair assessment. I think that that's an absolutely fair assessment. In fact, you know, sometimes hermeticism is summed up, you know, very succinctly. And they would say that the hermetic axiom, the hermetic axiom is as above, so mm -hmm. below. Mm -hmm. And realistically, that comes from the Emerald Tablets of, of uh, Hermes Tresmegistus, who tells us that which is above is that which is below, and that mm -hmm. which is below is that which is above for the performance of the miracles of the one thing. If I had to put that in modern day language, what I would essentially say is that in order to create everything in a way that makes sense and returns back into itself, that's completely self-sustaining, uh, creation had to create a relatively simple model so that things on a macrocosmic scale mirror exactly the things that are happening on a microcosmic scale. Mm. And, uh, you know, obviously in the Western tradition, this comes from, you know, Greek thought and before it Sumerian thought and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But that is also very much so reflected in the Eastern traditions as well. You get the very same concepts 
mm -hmm. uh, showing themselves in Hinduism in India and the very same concepts in Taoism in China and so on and so forth. And so mm -hmm. you, you see it just about anywhere that you go that it's a perennial philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and how does that how does that unpack when you look at your your treatments for how you how you treat people who come to you? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a lot of ways that that actually shows up. But, you know, for instance, one of the main things that I take a look at are the five Paracelsian, what are called entia of disease, uh, as he defined them. And the first one is ens astrale, or cause of disease due to the stars. And it's basically that at the time of your birth, all of the stars and the planets have a very particular position. That becomes kind of like the astral imprint, if you will, of that individual, their own unique kind of thumbprint. Um, and it's, you know, even people who are born the very same day in the same city, depending on where they're at in that city, they could be five miles or, you know, several kilometers apart or whatever, you end up seeing that they have differences in the positions of those things in relationship to where they, they were, even though it's, you know, same time, virtually the same city, because it's all topocentric, it's topographically uh, variated in, in terms of what you see when you're looking up at the heavens from that particular topographical location. So, you know, one of those things about the fingerprint is that the planets are always moving and the planets are, are more or less moving along the ecliptic. And so there's 13 constellations along the ecliptic and where the planet lies at a particular, you know, degree inside of one of these constellations, it can create either sympathies or antipathy towards the physical, psychological, and spiritual construction of the individual. And so we can see how things that are happening way out astronomically are having a direct effect on the soul, the spirit, and the body of people here and creating either you know, a proclivity for wellness or the lack thereof, uh, depending on those things. So that's, that's kind of the first thing is like as above, literally, so below or within. But then, you know, that also goes for the psychological material of an individual and how that, like their stresses, their fears, so on and so forth, project through, through the psyche and have ramifications, therefore, on the body and also on the spirit of their wellness. And so you see this as within, so without uh, kind of aspect of it, too. And so it's kind of, like I said, the cornerstone of everything that I do is being able to take a look. Uh, very holistically at all of these aspects and being able to determine what is causing, you know, a Cartesian split in this individual that's causing, you know, stress that is giving them a proclivity towards heart disorders or breathing conditions or so on and so forth. Or also, like I said, the positions of the planets or other things. So, you, you, yeah, it's, it dominates the work that I do. Uh, I didn't realize that, um, as, like the astrology had such a, a big part of of um of what you do but again listening to some of your your shows and uh reading some of your work um it's massive it's, it's really key to what you do yeah in fact it's like i said it's one of the major cornerstones there's really three practices inside of the corpus of hermeticism that are absolutely vital if you consider yourself a hermeticist and that's alchemy and then astrology or astronomy and then magic or Kabbalah, depending on your persuasion and tradition. And um, with all three of those, I'm a very avid practitioner and student, right. uh, lifelong of, of all of these traditions and mm -hmm. incorporate all of that into the work that I personally do. So in terms of establishing a, 
a diagnosis or a method of treatment for, for an individual. How does that process start? Well, we have to be somewhat careful so that the FDA doesn't come shut me down because I can't really create diagnosis and I can't treat anybody. Okay. Yeah. No diagnosing, treating, curing, preventing any disease or illness. But, um, you know, basically because of the way that the laws are written here in the United States, I just have to be very careful with what I do. And so my research right. projects are really taking a look at the way that things would have been uh, talked about in Paracelsian terms and language, mm -hmm. and then I have freedom to be able to research and explore and find okay. these things. If people experience good benefit from the work that I do, then that's that's awesome. That's a great bonus, and it goes into the case studies. But at the present time, uh, they're very very strict on us about that mm -hmm. over here, mm -hmm. uh, and not so much in Europe. Actually, there are tons of radionics practitioners and other people who okay. are able to work with things in in both the UK as well as in in uh, European Union states. So with that being said, though, um, yeah, basically the way that we would take a look at things is that when somebody comes to us, they would tell us, obviously, hey, I'm having these symptoms, I'm sick. And so you write down, you take a look at all of the things that could be going wrong with them in the context of Paracelsianism, which are five causes, the Ainsestrale, or cause of disease due to the stars, Ainsnaturale, which is cause of disease due to natural factors. This could be the diet that the person is eating. It's also the season of the year. It's also, uh, you know, their own constitution and uh, all of these different types of archetypal things that create imbalances, either of various elements or, or you know, uh, archetypal qualities like having too much heat, too much dampness, too much cold, too much wind, things like that. Uh, then there's Ainsveneni, which is a cause of disease due to toxins and poisons. And then we have inspirituale, the cause of disease due to spirits or electrochemical uh, phenomena. And then you also have ainsdei, um, which is the cause of disease due to God. And realistically, Paracelsus was very avid and very religious. He called it the uh, cause of disease due to God. I, today in my work, being not Christian, uh, I would refer to this as things that transgress the conscience of an individual. So it doesn't matter whether that's your belief system or something that is perennially true. It really depends on your own personal conscience. And if you do something that transgresses that conscience, then that can create, you know, a number of different imbalances in the psyche. And, and as we know, most of disease is psychosomatic. Even the very best doctors and researchers today in the Western medical paradigm are admitting that most disease has a psychosomatic origin. They just don't know what the connection is or how to scientifically be able to bridge the gaps between all of these various world traditions and, and what they're seeing in their own practices. So that's the first thing. And that's how we would find out which of those five imbalances are the most imbalanced. And then systematically you go through and you address uh, those things. And as Paracelsus said, and my work uh, with IDF research also seems to vindicate this, is that the most common thing is actually ancestrale. But that doesn't always mean that just because that's out of balance that that's going to completely address the uh, the 100% of the issues because you know within the context both of uh, you know vibrational medicine by Dr. Richard Gerber that was a fantastic book he talks about this very same principle that there is this succession of different planes or dimensions to the human anatomy and so he refers to this as multidimensional human anatomy. In Kabbalah, we have the very same thing in the very same four dimensions. Uh, in Kabbalah, you start off with Atzilut, which is the spiritual dimension. 
And this corresponds to the element of fire traditionally in the West in the Hermetic text. And then you go down and once things in the spiritual dimension, this is like our sense of oneness, belonging, uh, the sense of source to creation, et cetera, et cetera. Then down below that, you have uh, what would be known as Braya or the, the archetypal realm of air. Uh, this would be called the causal plane. So this is cause and effect. What is the purpose of this entire life form? What is the purpose of this being's mission, of this being's body, of this being's, you know, so on and so forth? So you're taking a look in the causal plane. Then the next one is going to be uh, Asaya. And this is uh, the, or sorry, uh, Yetzira next, which is the archetypal plane of, of water and the astral plane. And this is where the planets uh, exhibit their influence at the top of the astral plane, but in the lower astral plane, because the planets and the stars are really just archetypal energies that have precipitated from the causal, the combination of planets and stars and where they're at and all of these different things, those create myriad different varieties, kind of like programming uh, that we take a look at today. And so the astral is kind of like the short code of the multidimensional body, whereas the causal plane is like the binary, the zeros and the ones of, of the programming of our reality. And so uh, in the lower planes of the astral, this is where thoughts and emotions, beliefs, etc., are, are really heavily dense and present and where human beings in particular over all other species on this earth are able to interact very deeply with the astral in a very conscious way uh, through the conduit of the mind. And then finally, there's the realm of Asaya, which is uh, earth or the physical body. And this is the most dense, but all four of these planes really stack upon one, one another in a certain regard, but then they're also like, you know, laid over each other, much in the same way as like a hologram is, where you might have multiple different layers, actually one layered over the top of the other, but eventually when you look at it, what it looks like is just a holographic image, a single image that you can take a look at. And that seems to be the hermetic or Paracelsian viewpoint of how wellness and health and, and things like that are created. And so uh, being able to find out which of the dimensions a particular imbalance exists in, in order to be able to address it effectively is, is a huge part of my work, a huge part of Paracelsianism. Thank you, that's really interesting. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's so lovely to hear someone speak um, so eloquently about their, their, um, their, their research and their profession, that's really enjoyable. Um, Thank you. Speaking of that so you mentioned you you've been um studying and, and exploring this area for 17 years retrospectively looking back what's what surprised you the most from your journey <laughs> oh man that might be one of the more difficult questions i've ever been asked you know i think i think a large part of what's really been surprising is how various entities, especially what we call in spirituale, how that has very specific, like we, I can explain it scientifically and draw the parallels from scientific electromagnetic and electrochemical phenomena perspective, but how all earth peoples, regardless of where they're at, whether they're Native American, Native Africans, Native Asians, or anywhere in between, uh, like we were talking about before the show, also heavily within the Jinn tradition of, of Islamic culture, as well as very much so in the Celtic culture with the Fae, you begin to see that there is uh, 
tremendous reality to that plane and how a great deal of disease and illnesses and other things like that actually spawn from what most people would refer to as metaphysical or supernatural kind of phenomena. And uh, that to me has been very, very fascinating. And, you know, I started learning about obviously fae and fairy folk and things like that at a very young age, like most kids do with fairy tales and so on and so forth. But then continuing my study, especially within the context of modern Druidry and Celtic spirituality, is continually taking me down this road. And, you know, when you talk about the good people and you talk about all of these other uh, really strong phenomena that even modern day individuals who are associated on the land and live rather outside of cities, you know, within a hedge, so to speak, they're able to quantify what these experiences look like. And it's not just some sort of fictional thing to them. So being able to validate that from the perspective of my research uh, and, and with wellness in particular has been absolutely vast. I think that's one of the biggest things that modern Western you know, medical approach ha is completely blind to and not even open to really receiving at this time. So, uh, so many people are suffering from these kinds of conditions though. You know, when you hear about, you know, the host of the fairies, you know, strike you with an arrow or these fairy pains you know and things like that yeah. there's actual legitimacy to that from my perspective well that's that's really interesting um and and such a kind of a a theme here on this show so i'd, I'd, I'd love to talk about that more and like like you said talk about being struck by by fairy arrows and, and the idea of like the angi hushi the, the fairy wind that touches somebody then kind of like a the associations with 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 epilepsy and strokes and all yes. that that type of of uh, ailment and condition um and in in i guess looking at that and, and thinking about well we're in a relationship with something we're partially in their territory and they're partially in ours whatever it is you know right. i mean do do you attribute um like uh, a mind to the other like is is it um are we engaging with something that is intelligent in the way that we understand intelligence i mean it, it seems so you know i, I i'm you know the, the thing for me that kind of i struggle with is is like everybody else it's the, the subject by itself refuses to to kind of um stay still long enough for us to kind of draw a shape <laughs> and understand it like uh, uh and if it does it's only tricking you you know um so you know it's it's that kind of like self-reflective fractal nature to it like um and that's i guess what my question is is that like through your experience and kind of uh, i i guess treating people or exploring that people who've been kind of afflicted in this it like what's is there a rationale that we can comprehend are we able to comprehend the rationale of of the other in my experience very much so yes and we don't always have good modern terminology for these things but if we reach back into the past and take the terminology that already exists and then put it into a modern context then we can explain these things almost 100% of the time, if not more. And, you know, like a, a good thing, you were talking about the wind, like the fairy wind. 
in the Amazon, uh, I stayed in Tarapoto in 2014 and, and actually taught Spigeria to uh, Corriente Amazonian herbals. Uh, they hired me to come down there and, and to be able to teach this work. And while we were staying at uh, their facility at Yakumaman, there is this hill because they're in the high mountainous jungles, North Amazon basin. And every night, literally every night, the strong wind comes in and all of the local Indios, all of the Indians that are there, the native people that are there, they will all tell you, you go indoors the second that that wind starts or preferably be indoors even before it because you'll be afflicted with all sorts of different types of diseases from the unseen forces of that world. And, you know, Cosmovision, Amazonian Cos Cosmovision is still very much so alive and palpable in those places. They, they talk about the Fae uh, as, as I, that again, to reach back from my ancestry and to draw some terminology that makes sense to me. They talk about, you know, various beings like Chuyachaki and, you know, the, the Yakumaman, which is the great serpent of the waters and, you know, all of these other things that in a way that, that it is still very real uh, even the Christian folk acknowledge that these things are very real and palpable and they don't go into the depths of the forest without making offerings of mapacho or sacred tobacco. They don't go into places without bringing Palo Santo with them in order to clean off all of the spirits uh, and the entities that might be uh, prevalent in forested uh, places of, of the Amazon basin and so on and so forth. And you begin to see that, you know, things that the West is coming to develop a great interest in like Shipibo shamanism and so on and so forth is really just their particular take on things that every Western tradition has already had and incorporated, not just Western tradition, Eastern traditions as well, that they've already had and incorporated and learned to deal with. And so an interdisciplinary study of these forces leads us to believe that the forces that we're dealing with are the very same. What they would refer to as Chuyachaki, who is this horned, being who has hooves, but the body of a man, the skin of a snake, uh, so on and so forth. It sounds so familiar to the Greek concept of Pan, right? The satyr who also has horns in the body of a man and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, Kernunos in the, the more Gaulish Celtic society and so yeah. on and so forth. You, you, you begin to see these very same archetypes recapitulated. Even in China, they have Shenong, who taught them about agriculture and how to connect with uh, the the land and deities there that were able to be able to bring mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of fertility to the land and so on and so forth. All of the, the concepts regionally maybe filtered through their own filter of cultural perception, mm -hmm. but the archetype remains exactly the same. We see this time after time after time. And so it, it's palpable and it, through interdisciplinary study, uh, from a scholastic perspective, you can begin to get a grasp on these things, but then existentially as well, you can really experience these things uh, with just the slightest bit of attunement or the slightest bit of receptivity. Uh, when you go out there and you throw out the concept of, you know, the modern person seeing things in a very modern way, and you go and feel these things for yourself, you have to say, this is palpable, this is real, I've had an experience. And then that's where the terminology from various cultures and, and interdisciplinary study really comes in to be able to speak about these things in an intelligent way. Are you familiar with the Irish philosopher um, uh, John Moriarty at all? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a, a lovely passage of his, and I, ca I can't remember exactly which book it is from. I think it's, it's from one of the, he did a lot of radio shows uh, back at home with RTE. Um, 
and he spoke about the idea, well, the idea of dream time in his book, The Dream Time, and saying that the West, we've run out of dreams, where we've kind yeah. of, where we've hit a point of, of we're, we're, we're sterile spiritually. We yeah. need to find uh, and re-engage and kind of spiritually rewild, to use a kind of a, a modern conservationist term but he wrote this beautiful passage of seeing the imprint of of a of a bogland hare where the hare had slept and he lay down in it and he put his head in the imprint of where the hare had been and he asked the hare to take all the western nonsense and a modernity out of his head and just leave him in in a pure wild state and I remember listening to that 20 years ago and kind of thinking it sounded beautiful, but not really understanding it. And I think 20 years later, I understand it a lot more in terms of what he's talking about, you know, and that that state of rewilding, of connecting with nature in its rawest form and and, and seeing the true breath of it. I, I like I feel a lot of that when you talk about the Amazon world because I the the interesting thing uh, uh, about Ireland I mean I'm Irish I always think Ireland's interesting right um, what is interesting yeah, about Ireland you know is that that whole thing of like our 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 structure of reality has really always been mythos it's yes. not been logos we've always been mythos and and. And that's how the perception of reality really was up to a long time. And it was, I guess it was like up to the point of like, you know, the, 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 the first TV stations really crushed that. Whereas the industrial revolution did the rep that a lot kind of a hundred, 150 years earlier in the rest of Western Europe. And, and those, that kind of belief that actually no, the fairies are out there and they can be dangerous you know, you need to be aware of that. I think it's quite, um, was quite prevalent. I, I remember being a kid and, and having that being told to me. You know, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, you know well, and anywhere in Western Ireland, I mean, yeah. so connected into the concept of the she and the fairy folk. That oh yeah, yeah. It's it's an interwoven into daily life, just mm -hmm. the way that you live, especially in the West. I mean, there are other places, of course, yeah. that yeah. Um, you know, it's still much so alive and, mm -hmm. and palpable, but. You know, uh, just for instance, the Geltak communities mostly still survive in, in the yeah. west of Ireland more than many other places. Otherwise, that or they're like new new offshoots, new starts of younger people who are interested in. Oh, you're absolutely right. That, that's that's 100% accurate. I, I grew up in the Geltak and like that's absolutely correct. You know, yeah. that, that is an, it's an intrinsic part of that of the area. You know, um, but it was something that that you'd said previously. I, I heard you say this. Um, I've been binging on your podcasts uh, in preparation <laughs> for the show, uh, and uh, it, it was that idea of kind of like in in cultures that are closer to nature, that are that are that have not been on been through modernity, that that closeness to nature and to the environment means the exposure to entities is far more tangible and it has far more tangible um i i guess uh, implications yeah you know, absolutely you know. um and i think you were, you were talking about the amazon and just saying kind of how that the the veil is thinner and that strikes me that the west of ireland is, is similar not not as much now but it was it was yes. thinner you know um, and uh, Eddie Lenahan, the Irish storyteller, has um, a thing that he talks about, kind of like seeing lights in the boglands, and uh, that they used to be really prevalent. 
but kind of during the uh, the Irish War of Independence, when you had kind of the the, the flying columns, the the IRA man who used to kind of hide basically out in the bog and come in and do guerrilla attacks and all that kind of stuff. Um, between that happening and then the advocate um, of uh, motorized cars going around the area with elect- electric lights was the language that was used. Yeah. That meant the kind of then the the, the fading away of the, of the bogland lights, you know, yes. the fairy lights. Absolutely. Yeah, sadly enough, I mean, that happens. The more domestication. So I'm actually reading this book right now. I think it's been out for maybe a number of years, but I'm reading a book right now called uh, Witchcraft Medicine. It's written by three Germanic authors that are absolutely fantastic, very scholarly. The whole thing is researched exceptionally well from a scholarly position, but also from a practical position of having practiced various uh, modalities of witchcraft or growing up in regional traditions in the Germanic tradition, especially where Frau Holle and all of these other uh, Germanic entities are, are a really big thing in, in their culture as well. Uh, it, much the same, like when you get up into more distant places from bigger cities, you know, you get out of Berlin, you get out of Bonn, you get out of all these places, you begin to see more farmlands, especially towards Austria and Prussia and and into Switzerland and so on and so forth, they still have these very strong cultural identities of, of what they do and how they utilize magic and, and plants as magical entities to be able to ward off evil entities and evil spirits and so on and so forth. And it's, it's a really fascinating book, but they were talking about this long, the first few chapters really elucidate and bring up in such beautiful imagery how people from Neolithic ages onward have constantly uh, been in touch with various entities that they give names to and mythology to and understand in a way that is very archetypal, even though they can't always see them, they can sense them, they can perceive them. Um, and how, as of the start of, mo- of modernity, and especially, you know, even since the Inquisition in particular, because, you know, even with Christianity, all of the regional gods and entities really just became uh, recapitulated under the name of a saint. So yeah. that instead of seeing, you know, Kernunos or the horned one coming through the fields and offering fertility, now you're seeing one of the saints doing the same thing. And, you know, the associated clergy members aren't so uptight about that. But starting as of the Inquisition, mm-hmm. especially when we talk about Francis Bacon's work, which I'm torn about because I have many of Francis Bacon's written works uh, here as an alchemist. But you begin to see this very clear, decisive split, whereas nature was something that was, so to speak, the uh, kind of like the maiden that belonged to God, where God brought, you know, the seed of things and seeded this land. But it was the feminine aspect of the earth that really brought all of these things into life and into birth Mm -hmm. and that the unseen forces of this world were really just messengers or angels or carriers of those forces of of life and of destruction. Whereas at the time of the Inquisition, you start to see that nature actually becomes something that needs to be completely brought under the slavery. And that's actually the the term brought under the captivity or the slavery used by Francis Bacon Mm -hmm. of mankind. And it needs to be dominated and controlled and enslaved. And that we're still in that mindset, post-inquisition mm-hmm. mindset, where nature is something that is to be subsumed or consumed and brought under the control of the logical Western archetypal and now scientific mind, 
and it just needs to be exploited as much as possible because it's yeah. just resources and you use it for your physical well-being or financial well-being or whatever. That viewpoint is such a stark contrast to anything that has happened before the Inquisition that you know, if people really just open themselves mildly to the concept that there are these forces, that there are things that maybe they can't explain with their logical mind, and they get out into the wild places, they're going to feel them. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, there are some things that are completely undeniable, such as David Pleiades missing 411 cases, especially here in the United States with Yosemite National Park and other parks like this. You get out into these wild areas that the natives have always said, don't go there. Like there are these spirits that you don't deal with. And then people go there, you know, with the Western mindset of like, oh, it's just nature and, you know, disappeared. Nothing shows up but their entrails and so on and so forth. And you see that there are spirits of destruction, that there are spirits of procreation, that there are spirits of many different forms. And even the trees and the, the, you know, every blade of grass, every plant has its own unique spirit, has its own unique intelligence that is at once corporeal by way of the plant, but it's also very incorporeal and it's also very uh, metaphysical, so to speak, from the Western perspective, in that there are these plant spirits that aid the fertility of that plant itself. So you can harvest the plant, but the plant spirit remains behind unless you summon it and bring it with you. And you you see a lot of this actually too with the jinn, uh, I see a lot of, uh, in Indonesia in particular, songs or spellcraft that gets associated with harvesting various plants or making various concoctions, uh, especially uh, balur silat is this type of uh, oil that's used in the penchak silat tradition that is able to draw down wounds and things like that. And not only right. do you need magnetic sand inside of it, but you also need to be able to recite the incantations properly in order for the jinn, the spirits of those plants, to be able to, to be infused inside of that, uh, that particular concoction that you make. Um, so, you know, we see this all over the place, all over the world. I think it's really important that we start paying attention to these things a little bit more and incorporating them as modern individuals. Mm. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I absolutely couldn't agree more. You know, and, and you, you know, you, you see a river with personhood, you know, you're, you, you, one would hope you would be less inclined to abuse it, to pollute it, you know, and, yes. and um, I find it interesting of, you know, the idea of kind of decolonizing society and decolonizing one's mind. I mean, for me, the first stop with that is the approach to nature. Yes. You know, like an, an understanding that it's not dominance, that we are part of it. Um, and I think we just, you know, it's something that we have to achieve or we're, we're in pretty dire yeah. straits, really, you know? Um, well, and a lot of things just really fast while, while I have this thought, one of the things that most people are completely ignorant to are the spirits that are present in any creation, whether nature is creating it or whether man has created it. Mm-hmm. And so you best believe that by building, you know, square houses out of, you know, highly synthesized materials and so on and so forth. There are spirits that are attached to that as well. It's not dead. It's not inert. Mm -hmm. And these types of spirits are largely destructive based spirits. And so we see people in highly crowded cities and these large high rises and flats and so on and so forth, where they begin experiencing sense of depression or, or states of mania, Mm -hmm. schizophrenia and all these other things. And modern you know, Western medicine just wants to throw psychiatric medications at them 
where that usually only exacerbates the issue or makes the individual numb enough that mm-hmm. you know those things are still there but they don't care quite as much or so on and so forth whereas when you actually begin to listen to what those spirits have to say and why they are, they exist there and how they breed and how they they live in these places of of what we would re- refer to as natural sterility there's no more nature there it's mm-hmm. just you know hum- humanistic construction i think the spirits are equally as present there it's just that people have the more that a, a present is spirit uh, or a spirit is present the more people tend to shut it out entirely and just not even notice it not even be aware of it and uh, the more that it happens, the more that they push back with their sense of ignorance or, mm-hmm. or lack of wanting to know. So, you know, as I think that all of that is, is really, really critically important that people mm-hmm. begin thinking about the types of negative spiritual entities and forces that exist inside of the city experience mm-hmm. and that we haven't ever escaped this spiritual phenomena. We've only tried to numb ourselves to it mm-hmm. through the medications and through the worldview that make us believe that it's not there and that it's not real but we're still equally as impacted by it that's 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 a really interesting thought i think if if you if you pull that thread you look at then kind of the extreme behavior that we don't acknowledge as extreme behavior exactly like like that kind of like excessive consumption like of anything you know like that's it's it's a weird thing the constant need for the new you know, like, um, and that's again, it's it's some sort of disassociation as well. Well, I mean, if you take a look at it too, if nature spirits allow for natural fertility and bring things uh, not only into being, but mm. out of being so that they can come back into being in a different way, much like the concept of the elder tree or even also the alder tree does mm. in traditional uh, druidic lore and so on and so forth we begin to see that those same forces are screaming out, but they have become perverted by the delineations of humanistic behavior in the modern realm. And so the spirits inside of houses tend to create perversions of sexuality. Mm. And if you take a look at the entire history of pornography, for instance, and you take a look at it from a scholastic perspective today, there are so many different perversions of, of, pornography that it's no longer just an act of copulation Mm. there's all sorts of abuse that goes along with it and so on and so forth these people are inventing this within the context they're not out in nature creating natural beds anymore from Mm. the herbs and the leaves and so on and so forth and copulating this way which was a very strong tradition the entire world over but now they're secluding their sexuality creating their sexual life forces of creation and it's becoming this massive perversion of abuse and degradation Mm -hmm. and you know raunch and so on and so forth that it can't really even be used anymore for a sense of of procreation or Mm -hmm. bringing life and creation to the forefront and so people are just as impacted by these things now as they ever have been the only difference is that they've created a container that doesn't allow for the natural expressions to happen and has created very unnatural uh, expressions to thrive Hey, that, that, that's it's really interesting and, and like again if you, you know i mean i i would extend that to kind of like closeness to to seeing like um how life happens how life plays out in the wild as well you know like the the kind of the the seasonality 
with 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 animals uh, on in in how they behave um breeding and whatnot i mean i i think that exposure to 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 seeing those uh, those patterns of behaviors it, it it grounds you you know you kind of uh you know what's going to happen in springtime yeah you know what i mean yes uh, um it's 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 hard to say but i i do think that the, there there is this there is going to be there is the movement of like you know like you got cottage core and kind of people kind of moving back to kind of slow food and and and, yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff but it but it's 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 still like it's still embryonic yes. um and and ultimately you're up against the 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 might of of amazon you know they like the, the the most powerful entities in the world are tech giants you know and 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 they steer a lot of our behavior um you know we're we're getting the same kind of emotional or even kind of not even emotional way beneath the, the kind of the chemical responses to who likes something you yes. know that we've tweet and what have you um so i think that overall that connection to nature in whatever way uh, people can 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 achieve it is is hugely important and again when we were chatting before the show i mean i think one of the main takeaways that people are going to have is like what happened in that 10 minutes that they keep <laughs> they keep referring to for the show it's like i've been listening for you know the guts of an hour and they still keep talking about this first 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> exactly um it was it was good stuff guys sorry no. <laughs> um but I, we were talking about kind of the the alchemical relationship with the, the plant kingdom, and I was talking from from a very simplistic sense, which is you know kind of how I am um, in terms of a, engaging with my own uh, with my own garden and kind of how how it's in, uh, hugely important to me and, and um, the just the practice of being in the garden, tending to to my plants, harvesting them, taking the seeds. One of my favorite things to do is to send people seeds just to go like, you know, just to go out. This gives me so much joy. I hope it gives you so much joy too, you know, but, but what it does to me, and this is the really interesting thing. And I find that, and it's interesting. You're talking about the idea of being in the kind of the artificial constructs of, of our kind of modern life. So I spend my life essentially either in my garden or basically immersed in technology. And I know the different head states. I, you know, I have a very, very different emotional response. I almost have one yeah. that's constant noise and another one with no noise, you yeah. know, well, there's nothing, there's wonderfully nothing yammering <laughs> on in my head. And, yeah. and, um, and that state comes from the garden, you know, and it's, it's, but it's the thing where like, I don't really have to do that much with some of it. Tomatoes just grow in my garden now. Like that's I've gone past the stage where I'll actually try and sow loads of stuff and some, you know, 50% of it might work, but I'll still get a crop of about 50 kilos of tomatoes because they just grow now, <laughs> you know, exactly. you know, yeah. uh, and, and that for me is that reciprocal thing where it's like, there's a, there's the, to me, it's like how I think about it, how I feel about it is that, well, they know this is their home too as well. So they just come, you know, and they know I look after them and, um, and again, I know that's a pretty kind of naive way for the Western mind to perceive that, but I kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it resonates with me. And it's, it's, you know, when I look at kind of animistic thinking, 
you know, I, I, I kind of see that too, you know, the way oh. people kind of engage with plants that way. It's like, well, why did you do that? Because the plant told me, Yeah. you know, and, and I think that's interesting that Westerners are starting to get that back, you know, and, and there's, there's less of a kind of a, a cultural kind of like, or the, the, the sledgehammer of, of modernity and empirical science just kind of crushing these concepts. Um, anyway, I was going to ask you a question and I got about a five minute waffle about me talking about my garden. <laughs> So, I'm glad that you did, though. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're very generous. But um, I kind of wanted to talk about, well, how does the, the plant kingdom fit into, into what you do and, and how you engage with plants when there are specific components and elements and substances? Yeah, so plants are an, in, a, an incredibly important concept to what is traditionally referred to as the genius loci in Latin, the genius loci being the intelligence of a particular location. It's made up of the minerals and the microbes and the, you know, the vegetative life and so on and so forth. And then, you know, because everything is kind of fractal, the genius loci of the plants themselves would be known as the viridis geni, or uh, the, the intelligence of the green beings. And Realistically, the way that the plants fit into to all of this is that they have their own characteristics, their own spirit, their own volition. Like, uh, why is one plant used for one particular thing and not used for another? From a scientific perspective, we can say, oh, well, that's because of its chemical constituency and we can try and explain it all away. But realistically, the plant itself has a different volition than one of the other plants in, in its neighboring vicinity and they don't all do the same thing. So they can be growing in the same environment, but they're not all used for the same thing, which throws parts of the aspects of the doctrine of signatures out the window, whereas, uh, at least in, in terms of the region where it's found, but it also shows you that each plant with its own particular signature, the way that you see it, does it have thorns on it? Is it a soft leaf? Is it a hard leaf? Is it very foliage-like? Or are the flowers the parts that we use? Are the roots the parts that we use? And so on and so forth they express themselves in a language that is just beyond human language, actually. It's so palpable because it's just like data, okay? So in, in techno, uh, technology-based uh, experience, we would take, say, you know, like a, a flash drive or thumb drive or something like this, and we put it inside of the computer, and then that computer can be able to process the data. Well, nature is data in the exact same way for the biological computer known as the human organism. And so we take that plant and we put, you know, metaphorically, that plant is like a thumb drive, and we put that inside of our mouth or inside of our body, and then you begin to extract the data from that, that plant or from that material, and you begin to notice there's a great deal of information there that is able to inform quite literally the way that your physiology works or behaves it alters you know it adds like a new program or sometimes it boosts the program or you know changes the entire operating system depending on what plant you're putting in your system uh so you know all of these things are really really critical from from a spiritual perspective to be able to see what is the spirit of this plan? What is the soul of this plan? What's the body of this plan? That's really why alchemy reached out so, so deeply to me from a very early age. I was 17 when I started practicing, like 16, 17, when I started practicing this work, noticing that each one of those components can be isolated through various extraction processes. Like for instance, you know, 
Whereas modern chemistry would say, oh, the terpenes of the plant are largely the essential oils. In alchemy, we would say that a certain way of approaching the essential oils needs to be extracted through these archetypal processes of say steam distillation or hydro distillation. And what that yields in our terminology is the volatile soul of the plant. So it's all of the inherent talents, all of the inherent interests, and kind of like the, the scope of why that being came into existence in the first place. Like what is its overall purpose? That's its volatile soul. And then you have the fixed soul of the plant, which can come out uh, you know, commonly because cannabis is such a, a common thing and so many people are extracting cannabis worldwide these days, I would say that the equivalent of what Rick Simpson oil is or what they called Phoenix Tears initially, that concentrates all of the fixed sulfur of the plant. It's like a plant extract that has all of the color of the plant. It has all of the tannins. It has all of the chemical constituents, whether those are you know, cannabinoids or terpenoids or so on and so forth. All of those uh, aspects are part of the plant that are tied up in its, its personality, but largely its physical-based personality, which is to say, like, if I were to talk about our fixed sulfur as a human being, that'd be the color of the skin, the color of the hair, the clothes that you wear, the color of your eyes, the sound of your voice, you know, all of those things that lend to your persona and your psychological perception of yourself and help the, the inherent soul, the volatile soul, come through in a way that kind of makes sense and fits the persona. But they're not entirely physical traits per se, like we could change the clothes of an individual, we can change the color of the eyes of an individual, especially with contacts and so on and so forth. We can, we can change, you know, so many of the aspects around us uh, by adding things to the, the experience, but still the way that the, the soul comes across is going to, you know, the higher soul, the talents or the interests is still going to be more or less the same. So here we are as humans, you know, dyeing our hair and shaving off body hair and, you know, doing all these things that inherently change the way that the natural medicine comes across, but plants don't do that. They exist fully in their natural state and they allow those defining characteristics to be a huge part of their healing identity and together the volatile sulfur or any of the volatile oils and essential oils as well as all of the uh, terpenoids or alkaloids and so on and so forth tannins uh, cruder chemical constituents all of those are the medicinal identity of the plant and the spirit of the plant is what happens when you ferment a plant and then distill the spirit out of it. So we've all drunk spirits before, like wishkaba, right? Uh, we've all had uh, plenty of moments of saying slancha uh, to each other or prost, uh, whatever. And these indeed, are, indeed. yeah, this is where we're getting the spirit of the plant and actually we're imbuing the spirit as human beings with that intention. So slancha, health, you know, cost like you know cheers kind of thing mm -hmm. uh, even saying cheers in english is you know that very same concept of being able to say may the spirit make you happy may it not be a depressive uh, experience for you and so on and so forth and so the spirit is highly impressionable and you're constantly trying to interject yourself into that experience anytime you take that ferment or those distilled spirits on and then finally the body of the plant is all of the the undead mineral corpus. And in fact, uh, as alchemists, we're trained very much so a huge part of our work actually is taking the corpus of the plant, the, those minerals that even fire cannot burn away and being able to crystallize them into crystals so that you get a revivification, a, a 
rebirth of the body. And then we'll take all three of these things, the spirit, the body, and the soul, and put them together and recapitulate them in a new way in our pharmacopoeia that leaves all of the dross behind and um, more or less magnifies the potency and the purity of the, the essence of that particular plant spirit, that plant being. And um, yeah, so for me, you know, the plants are equally as alive and trees just as much so, perhaps actually even more so because they exude this enormous, you know, sphere of, of vital life force energy of, of tea. And they kind of intermediate between the terrestrial realms and the celestial realms, constantly drawing out energy from celestial realms, like from the sun using photosynthesis, but then simultaneously growing beneath the ground just as they grow above the ground, they become kind of like a cosmic antennae really that adds so much to the experience of, of what we experience as the viridis geni in any particular uh, genius loci. So it's, uh, yeah, for me, plants are the, are the things that I'm absolutely the most passionate about because they are so easy to be able to put into our bodies, whether we're using the spagyric process or not. And, you know, even using them in the witchcraft tradition or in, in various magical traditions across the world, plants have this huge role, even in incense, right? You make the right incense out of certain uh, aromatic herbs and you light it and it alters your consciousness. It fills the room with an otherwise uh, not present energy or spirit. And so being able to utilize that and call upon that and, and work with these entities in a very conscious way, I think uh, has enriched my life in ways that are, are so numerous. I can't even really count them all anymore. So we're, we're, we're getting close to the, the hour and a half and, I, and I, I'd like to ask kind of what's, what's next for you and, and where's, the, where's the right place for people to find you if they want to find out more about your work? Sure. So, uh, yeah, the, the next things for me. Wow. Um, I just continue doing research all the time and then bringing my research through podcasts like this and, and uh, through my written works and so on and so forth to the public to be able to share from my lens to, to their mind what mm -hmm. I have been able to see so that hopefully it opens up our minds and opens up our ability to think about health and medicine and the relations mm -hmm. that we have with nature and begin to see all of that in a more holistic perspective that ties multiple different, uh, you know, different studies kind of together and you begin to see it as one, just like, you know, we were talking about, you know, at some point gardening and kitchen work become the same thing. And mm. then, you know, that extends into the laboratory too, because, mm. you know, you grow heaps of oregano one year it's like, well, I, I've got more dried oregano that I can, that I know what to do with. And then, you know, you begin to infuse some in olive oil or you yeah. begin to infuse it into other things. The second that you do that, you're actually stepping into the laboratory because at some point you'll end up using that oregano oil and, and that you've made, not just in your salads and in, in, mm -hmm. you know, cooked dishes, but you'll end up putting it on your skin at some point, you know, mm -hmm. and it got rid of toenail fungus. Oh, wow. Look at that. That's crazy. Maybe that's really good for this. And that experience keeps us evolving. And so being able to show my lens of that, I think is, is probably the most important part of my work and what continu continues to drive me uh, so that we have things to draw upon. I, I was born into a very inert culture 
uh, that didn't have a lot of that, you know, it was all Western pharmaceuticals. And so what a big part of what drives me is to be able to preserve these traditions of working with the natural world, not only for my daughter's generation, mm. but for many generations to come in such a way that people can look back and say, you know what, the culture was mostly dead, but there were people out there who were doing these things. Mm. And, and hopefully that inspires them. So yeah, I think that's what's what's next for me. And it's virtually the same that it has been for these nigh 20 years. Mm. But uh, the way that people can get in touch with me and learn more about my work is just to visit my website, which is uh, phoenixaurelius.org. And uh, that's P-H-O-E-N-I-X-A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S, Aurelius, like Marcus Aurelius.org. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I offer, you know, not only do I have an entire apothecary uh, that funds the research largely mm -hmm. that I do, uh, where people from all over the world, well, except for European Union, Unfortunately, they don't want any American supplements of, of any sort. And so they end up not making it through oh, really? more often than not. Yeah, Ireland actually tends to be very not strict about that. But if I tried to send these to Germany or Switzerland or yeah. Italy, they get returned about nine times out of 10. Um, and the, even the countries that do get it, because we ship, I have students yeah. in Sweden and Ireland uh, quite a great deal. They, mm. They oftentimes have to pay a hellacious tax on those things. So right. unfortunately, you know, if, if you're in other places like that, it's at your own risk. But North America, South America, most of Asia, almost all of the islands, uh, we ship to almost all of those countries, with the exception of very few. Uh, but then I also do uh, intrinsic data field research and and work on on uh, people remotely uh, doing research wellness programs so that we can find out what which of the five entia might be affecting somebody or causing mm -hmm. a particular condition and you know it's just people largely who are are supporting my work and supporting my research who allow this type of work to really be perpetuated in the United mm -hmm. States because unlike European Union uh, areas and, and the UK, we're not allowed to use intrinsic data field technology here in the United States for any sort of wellness related purpose whatsoever. Mm -hmm. they, the FDA is very strict about that. So right. um, I have to do everything I do is research. And uh, so it comes largely from people who are very, very interested in this mm -hmm. work, promoting the research and talking about it to other friends and so on and so forth. And we have huge successes in the, the research and case studies that we've been able to gather. And we're just looking to get more and more and more of those right. uh, so that we can hopefully uh, down the line, create some peer reviewed studies and even medical double blinds, but it all starts with showing these case studies and then being able to eliminate whatever factors could have otherwise been yeah. causing uh, Im improvements or whatever. So slow work, but really important and yeah uh, absolutely yeah we want to run 100 percent off of it's publicly funded so if people like our work and are funding the research that we do then we're able to continue doing what we're doing and once public research stops then you know we're we're not able to uh or once public support stops and we're not able to continue and mm -hmm. keep sharing so we've been very fortunate that the more people we expose this work to and the more perspective that I offer from what I learn and take away from this work, the more support we get. And it's been absolutely amazing because it takes us into being able to do many more things that otherwise are way outside of the budget of anybody except for large corporations. And uh, right. we're, right. we're so pleased and, and um, really humbled by the fact that enough people support us that we're able to get many of the pieces of equipment that are necessary mm -hmm. and, and perform a lot of things that otherwise we'd be very restricted uh, to by funding 
and we don't do this for for profit you know everything is all public response and public funding and so mm -hmm. it's uh and because you know i talk so much about spirits and work outside of the the main botanical sciences uh we're not very eligible for most grants or you know i i feel yeah i feel yeah that one <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, uh, yeah it's i had the same trouble with with editors photographic magazines yes yeah. I'm like what do you mean you don't want a story about uh gin and uh, <laughs> left hand part rituals everybody's interested in this stuff yeah and they're like yeah well how's it gonna sell where, where where's the money on the back end yeah yeah exactly uh but I think it's, it's been absolutely lovely chatting to you, and um, you know I do hope I can I can tempt you back onto the spirit box uh, again at some stage in the future. Um, but it's oh, been uh, without a doubt, this has been absolutely wonderful, fantastic. But thank you again for your time; really appreciate it. And uh, let's catch up soon. Excellent. Likewise, brother. Thank you. There you have it that was glorious i hope you guys enjoyed that as much as i did and be sure to check out phoenix's links in the show notes um, and hopefully we can get him back soon on the show okay we'll wrap it up there as always thank you for listening and talk soon mm -hmm.